Well, we're talking about, I guess, easy description is the sense of awe. And that you could actually use in the sense of the word overwhelmed. Mm. But we're not. We're not overwhelmed. So it, it's uh, just a really nice feeling to become kind of at one with everything. Yes, it, it would be overwhelming, except the, the part of you, the I that could be overwhelmed, necessarily has to of. Uh, oh, yeah, I get what you're talking about. Yeah, right, that it, that it is, in fact, overwhelmed. It's, it just becomes insignificant compared to the, the big hit. Yeah. Um, yes, and just, I suppose, how that dimension, once, once when it's open in practice, sort of uh, contacting it in daily life um and letting that space emerge and letting that sense of war manifest again and again and again as you're going about your daily life mm-hmm. um and i know i said at the beginning of this conversation that i wasn't going to to do what I, what we did in the perhaps last group of times we spoke about this space maybe a year ago which is try and pin it down conceptually <laughs> um and yet at the same time i sort of on the one hand it's like i just want to trust this space and just let it sink in and like that's the process that happens this space just gets just sinks in and deepens and enmeshes more to the point that that overwhelm is almost, in the positive sense, uh, continuous. And it seems like... Often enough. Often enough. (laughs) And maybe that... And it's delightful when it comes. Yes. This is actually the reference of the delight in the Dhamma, where things are so delightful, you possibly couldn't harm anything. This, so this is the result then of one's uh, unification of mind, but when we're unifying the mind in this way, we're actually unifying the whole universe. At least as it presents in the mind, right? At, at, least, as, at least as it feels like from the outside of being a very small part of something else that's extremely, <laughs> really big. Yeah. And yet, there is definitely a place, or let us say a niche in that for great joy. Mm. It's just to be at home. Finally, we found our home, I guess, is a way that you can say it also. Because mm. everybody's a traveler trying to get back home, and that, that concept also feels, um, uh, let us say, conceptualizing it back to the uh, bonding of a baby with its mother right after Mm -hmm. and the nurturing that we get from our uh, mom i think i've heard some descriptions sort of uh scientific descriptions talking about like processing and 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 pre-processing and how this sort of state um 
Well, it's actually you don't need to. It can be described in scientific, in a kind of scientific neurological way, but it's also I think it's what's described in Petitza Samupada as well, right? This is uh -huh. the the uh, it's like the earlier stages of. Well, it's like consciousness without all the perception and all the sankharas and all the volitions and all the uh, suffering that that can arise from consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's like consciousness at a much earlier. We could go in so far as to say overly processed consciousness. Yes, what we get out of it instead of letting it all be there yes and i suppose it's consciousness that's not conditioned by ignorance as well right because in paditha samipada ignorance is what conditions it all but this exactly. is mm -hmm. exactly that in in fact in a way that we condition it by processing it with perception to make sense out of it because when we see it and make sense out of it then we kind of own it but what we own is what we what we sensed in the in the sense of making sense out of it or mm -hmm. the salayatana rather mm -hmm. than what we really experienced and so in in what we're talking about now is the state to where we're not processing any particular thing trying to make sense out of any particular thing and then it all comes in it becomes part of our the input of the of the senses um which is actually referred to in in the various places of uh the fourth fourth jhana in the states of that for instance um when they talk about boundless consciousness, what that means is, is that the amount of input that's coming in is no longer bounded by our ability to process it because we're not trying to process it anymore. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that sense of boundlessness and like how it ties in with the sense of letting go. Uh, like it feels like when, because that that's the main the main way that um, if. I'm using like a technique. It's just like the idea of like letting go of all experience as it as it arises. You're just continuously going it's like letting it go, um, and that letting go that process feels very. It feels like what gives rise to that sense of boundless expansion. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking now of um, it's actually in a song, and and in the song it says, "Just enjoy the show." Um, and yet, what we do with our whole lives and the whole show is, in fact, we become critics, and we criticize it, and we criticize ourselves, and we criticize the world, we criticize other people. We're critics all the time, and a critic is not there to enjoy the show. Mm. <laughs> he, he, he's there to criticize and so he's looking for what's wrong and um, 
this is also in line with what Shakespeare said, that the, uh, all the world's a stage and everyone is a player. Okay, so here we are with our old script. We're reading our script. Uh, the Sankar script, the script of all of the stuff that we've collected together, and that it's a uh, it's either a passion play or a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> and that the the whole idea then is we get off the stage, mm -hmm. and then we can sit in the audience and just enjoy the show, if we can actually enjoy the show. Instead of being a critic in the show. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can even occasionally glance up at the sky as we're in a Shakespearean open that's roof theater. The yeah, that's the show. <laughs> hey, yeah, man, it's all there. The whole show. That's what I'm talking about. Not not just the stage, but the whole show. And we become an observer of, of the whole show. Without picking about one little thing to get our attention on something and then go find fault with it and then go grab something else and find fault with it. And that's how we've been trained to do our whole lives. Mm -hmm. That's Western education for you. Trying to make everything better by fixing what's broken and we wind up. Yeah, we've got a nice technology. But everybody's miserable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody's unhappy. And all we have to do is remember that everything's going to be all right. And then we have to stop paying attention to the things that frighten us because we're not afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's also a key ingredient is, is by just simply being out of bad feelings. We're inviting ourselves to be in that really, really good feeling. And the really good part of it is that expansive feeling. Mm. And it's, it is a very, uh, when it comes into relation with other people, like when you can still, when the, the taste of that space is still there or the, the kind of expanse, the inner expansiveness hasn't gone and you're with other people, you, you're in a very kind of gentle, loving place because that... Only then can you do the method that they, is so highly advertised. Mm -hmm. And that method that we're talking about also was the very uh, state that uh, Jesus re was referring to. Yeah. Um, but in that sense, he was talking about Abba, not in the sense of Yahweh or a personal or a mono God, but that which is about us, the above us, that which contacts us. And that when we merge with that, it's an expansive quality. It is like being in heaven. Mm. And it also has the qualities of the fourth jhana, as I was saying in the sense of uh, when perception becomes very, very loose and consciousness is overwhelming, then we lose sense of the bound. We're not even thinking about the human body that we're, you know, yeah. lost in space, kind of. <laughs> and if we 
fully detach so that we're completely in it, then there's nothing left. Do you think I should try and work like systematically with that? Yes, systematically enjoy yes. moment by moment. Systematically de develop with the same gladdening thoughts that we've been using and add a few more gladdening thoughts like, wow, this is nice. Oh, what a wonderful world. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to be all right because you hear the expansive quality. Everything is not okay. Well, we'll get by this time is not the opinion. Oh, no, it's everything's going to be all right. So thinking expansively, having expansive uh, gladdening of the mind terminology. Mm. Here I was doing it and demonstrating it right in front of you, and then you ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we begin to have expansive thoughts. Mm. We begin, in fact, to drop all of the boundaries in the sense of... Um, it's, there's actually listed the four of them mm. and that the representation, I don't know if we've talked about this, it's been a while since I mentioned it to any students. And, and that is, is that we set down all of our defense as weapons. Mm. We, we stop bearing the cross. Okay, and, and, and uh, uh, a sword with a hilt or any of that kind of stuff. So we, we put down the crossbow. The second thing is, is that then we fill in the trench. Okay. And then uh, the, the next one is uh, that we lower the banner. Mm -hmm. So that we're not identifying with this and that, and I am this and I am that. You can see how the, all of this becomes very expansive. And then we unbar the door. Okay, so now that means, the, I guess, the door to the heart or whatever like that. And then now we're, we're open. We've lost our boundaries. We've lost our identification. Um, and we've lost our fear because we're not defending anything anymore so we can think of it in in those four terms mm -hmm. to help you get into that state mm -hmm. but yeah we don't need that mode anymore we don't need to lock the door anymore we can join the <laughs> we can enjoy the show it's a lovely metaphor that <laughs> I remember you have you have you did speak to me once tell me that metaphor a long long time ago it's very nice um and still it depends upon sati yeah we have to remember these four things and remember to speak expansively. 
We keep talking to ourselves over and over and over again. Keep telling yourself, everything's going to be all right. Oh, what a marvelous place this universe is. Mm. As like, as off-cushion kind of uh, ways of training the mind into that unguarded open state. Is that what you're describing? Yes. Right. We train the mind in doing, these are all skills to be developed. How many times have I said this? Okay, yes. Because it's not, it's not something that you stumble onto yes. on a regular basis. It's something that you stumble onto once and then we go back and we recreate this and the Buddha's given all of the instructions needed to do all of this stuff. Mm. Because on, on Kishin, like once that space opens up, the, the self-talk it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't become necessary because it's like these it's like the mind is inclining towards that opening and you just point it in that direction. And if Sati's there to kind of catch you and maybe you move out of that direction and Sati just gives the the gentlest nudge back. Uh, it then that that process. The gentlest nudge is when there's enough effort. That's like um, uh, starting a fire mm -hmm. when you've got the right equipment is really really easy. Mm -hmm. A spyroelectric and a gas lighter, you know, they're very cheap. But fires were so difficult to start in the time of the Buddha, and I remember as a Boy Scout that there was a lot of work, a lot of effort in getting yeah. a fire started. Uh, and so, if we have the right tools and the right skills, then we can do it a lot easier. That a professional fire maker knows really what he's doing and how to do it, and he's really good at it. Most of us <laughs> we we stop doing it when we fail the first or second time. We never learned how to do it. But now it's really easy because we've got the right equipment, got the right tools. Unfortunately for the mind, everything is mental, and so we have to develop the tools that we need mm. or, the, or the skills. And the first one to come is sati, naturally. Mm. And now we're gladdening the mind. So this is the part that you're asking about. And that is with now we're going to go for expansive thoughts. Really, really high quality. Kind of things that make people swell up in tears. Mm -hmm. Like Satchmo singing, what a wonderful world. <laughs> okay. So this is the kind of thoughts that we begin to develop and begin to have. We set that mood, and as well as the fact that we've already been in states that feel really, really good. And I would imagine that what we're actually doing inside the brain is we're developing at least a sufficient amount of uh, cortisol, which is that bonding chemical. It's the way that a new uh, Not cortisol. Cortisol is the stress chemical. Oxy. No, no, right, 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 right. Oxycodone. <laughs> Thank you. Again, the old brain's getting old now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly opposite. Boy, like, uh, like concentration and samadhi being opposites. <laughs> 
yes. But anyway, that mothering uh, feeling of being a, you know, bonding with with something. Mm-hmm. Being a, being really in it, being really there, mm-hmm. being part of all, and that's that's how that's the way that we're investigating. That's the attitude. Also, the attitude is expansive. Mm-hmm. I reckon this is probably the way that babies are experiencing the world all the time is in that that pre-processing place. Like that's probably neurologically what's happening. Well, that's what we really love about the babies is when they're in that Gucci, Gucci, Gucci stage and that goo goo gaga and that gurgling happy baby. Yeah, that that's it. And then we beat it out of them intentionally <laughs> because of our culture. Mm. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a bit like, it's probably why the story of the fool and, uh, you know, the Christian story is so compelling is because it like actually speaks to this human experience of lapsing from this sort of perfect heavenly state where you come out of it but there must it's interesting because that development that a baby goes through is necessary to become a adult human being but it's just sad that somehow in the process of that we are not able to hold on to um in a way of speaking this is the story of adam and eve yes in the sense of we we get kicked out of our paradise because we start we we are taught to think critically mm-hmm. and I mean, so we become critical of the world yes that's the division cutting it up and saying this is good and this is bad and what we're doing now is we're letting the universe become paradise because it gets all back together again Yes, but we do as a species, right? We need, and as an, and as you know, nodes within. As a that. species, we're pretty messed up. <laughs> well, actually, the humans by themselves are okay. It's the programming that we've used that we call human culture. That's the problem. Yes, but I, that thing of that this, the discriminating mind, right? The the part of the mind that goes like this berry will poison me. I won't eat this berry will not poison me i will eat it like we need that part of our mind so we need we need that critical discerning part of our mind we just need to use it a little bit more skillfully and possibly a little bit less right exactly a whole lot less yeah and in more appropriate circumstances and within a framework where that's just one part of what the mind is able to contact and the mind is able to do and be. Well, if we get into it, then it's really, really worthwhile mm-hmm. to just to experience that. Everything's okay. 
But if we talk ourselves into it and keep telling ourselves that, you can actually feel that when you tell yourself that. This is the connection between the chitta and the, the Vedana. Mm -hmm. Or talking ourselves into feeling good. Okay, so now we're talking ourselves at a very, very high level, high class, into feeling good at a very, very high class, the top of humanity. When we're in that state, then the Brahma Bihara, that is in fact the, the Brahma Bihara. Mm -hmm. And in that Brahma Bihara, that, uh, that high class way of, of feeling in the moment becomes um, our home because we are at home. We recognize that we're at home. This is finally, I'm home already. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because the Brahma Bihara is normally stuck start with metta and end with upekka, right? End with equanimity. Whereas this way of approaching that state starts with equanimity, the equanimity of like letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And then from that spaciousness, the metta and the compassion and the mudita like that is much more apparent. So it's interesting, it's gone at slightly the, that, this way rather than this way. So exactly. So it's all taught upside down in the sense of sila samati panya. Mm -hmm. But in ordinary culture, it's that we're given a set of rules. We're given a set of precepts, laws. Uh, this is how you do it. Okay, so we're raised on that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the mindset that then takes on metta. Oh, you should have metta. This is how you do it. Step one, two, three. Everybody sits down and practices that. And some, very rarely, but some people really get, ooh, like that <clears throat> when practicing metta. But that's quite rare. <clears throat> to where the other way to do it is, is that working through Anapanasati in the Eightfold Noble Path and developing the seven factors of enlightenment, that's when we have those seven factors, the Sambhojana, is when <clears throat> it, that that's actually the description of that state that we're talking about with its constituent components. Mm -hmm. We've got unremitting joy, I mean, it's like, <laughs> And, and peace and at rest and um, uh, being able to think straight and things don't overwhelm us because we keep remembering to look at what's going on. And so we have energy with that. So those seven factors are actually the Eightfold Noble Path when it comes to completion of right view and right sati and uh, right effort. Now the effort is effortless if we get it right. Mm -hmm. It's really like just opening the door and let it all come yeah. in all by itself. I love yeah. that hiking uh, the and the grass grows by itself. You know that, that haiku, it's um, um, sitting here, nothing to do, no place to go. Mm -hmm. The spring comes, the grass grows by itself. <laughs> So that's right effort when it's really right effort, when it's a factor of enlightenment and everything mm -hmm. takes care of itself. 
So an easy way of looking at that is, uh, uh, oh, I want to go join Black Lives Matter or something like that. Why do you want to go join Black Lives Matter? He said, oh, well, we want to go out and protest in great numbers. I said, isn't there already a whole lot of people in great numbers out protesting? And what vantage will they have if you go out there too? Remember, what do, you, what do you want? What's your desire? And if your desire is to make the world a better place, then go join Black Lives Matter. But in fact, the world's a wonderful place. <laughs> this is a wonderful world. It's the fact that I don't like the same thing that those people don't like doesn't make us all correct. Mm-hmm. Although I think, I think people can approach that activism from a less uh, unhappy place because you're just what you're describing is like people approaching activism from a from a from a an enlightened a mental space which is not going to be very conducive for their uh, for their happiness and well-being and therefore other people's whereas there are examples of people approaching the idea of societal change from a really beautiful open non-violent non-aggressive perspective and that has produced wonderful changes which have opened up people's lives and enabled more people to to have dignity and peace and you know whatever in their lives right well that's what the buddha had in mind but we can only spread joy and peacefulness with joy and peacefulness, not demonstrations and protest. Protest by its very nature is violent. If yeah. we can agree with what they want as an outcome, that in fact, if you are out there with them, then your job would be directly to spread joy to them mm-hmm. rather than joining them. For them to walk down the street, I guess, singing, oh, what a wonderful world. Mm. That would be hard for some of them. <laughs> well, for a lot of, well, what a lot of people are contacting is the reality of, uh, well, it's, it's, it's the difficult thing, isn't it? It's like how to, how to hold the, that, open, glorious, perfectness. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't call it that. <laughs> perfectness is the right That space we're talking about, there's nothing wrong in that space, right? There's nothing wrong there. I mean, I, I take it that that space that we're describing and that is pointed at with some of the factors then of the the fourth jhana as it opens up it's the same thing that like the non-dual traditions like advaita or like the or like tibetan tantric traditions they call like the pristine mind the the like perfect what do they call it the anyway it's often described in like theistic or terms right like that's that's actually much more of a Western interpretation 
um, looking at those as deities or beings. Mm. A better way of looking at them as um, visual images mm. of someone who is enjoying the states that we're talking about. Mm. Well, almost like it's a theistic metaphor for... Well, it's a pictorial representation. What kind of picture are you going to have? I have an answer to that. God. <laughs> that night with the with the snakes, with the seven factors of awakening around around him. Yes, the seven factors of enlightenment. But you see that ordinary people will see that as some sort of magical being. Yeah. Rather than the seven factors of enlightenment. You see, the whole idea was is that the Buddha was sitting up at night in a rainstorm. And so he called upon the seven factors of enlightenment to give him cover. And he called it a Naga because that's, I mean, a big serpent or a very effective, powerful thing. But calling it a Naga, we can leave it as metaphor without it having to actually be magic. Because the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambo Janga, is real. Mm. Okay. So, that's if you can go into <laughs> the demonstration and the protest with this. Yeah. But what, what I was getting at was that they're uh, in contact with that, with that dimension of experience. And then coming into the world of samsara, which is full of really fucked up and awful things and injustice and, you know, how, how, how are you going to give a picture of it? What's your picture? How, how are you going to have a, a piece of art or something like that or a, a, a physical representation? And you already know that your audience is magically thinking, magically inclined anyway, so why not just have it a pictorial thing of, of a magical being that's enjoying the states that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. And so those are actually, those tacos were originally used as me- objects of meditation. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I get that. Probably quite effective also, if you understand that you're looking for, uh, let us say, the attribute behind it. Yes, because that, that's it, isn't it? They, they, the deity yoga is all about envisaging your, first of all, it's about visualizing the deity and seeing Each like... deity has a quality. By yeah. visualizing the deity, you're actually consuming and becoming that quality. Yes, and then you visualize yourself as the deity and you... But the Christians, they don't do that. I think they did hundreds of years ago, but they've stopped doing that completely. Hmm. Well, yes, they did have an idea, Catholicism, uh, imitatio Christi, I think. So, like, they had this notion that, like, you'd imitate Christ. Maybe that's not this similar idea. Right, exactly. But now the modern Christianity has had Jesus so up high that you can't possibly do it anyway, so why cry? Yeah. 
they made it completely magical rather than using his life as an example. Yeah. I think in 1950s, we actually had that in the sense of the way that they taught children. And maybe it was the issue was is that when I was in the 1950s, I was in children's Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the adults were doing different stuff. Mm-hmm. They, went, they went into literally the hardcore. Paul and the Old Testament. But they left Jesus for the kids. Jesus, yes, Jesus loved me. Yeah, oh, that's nice. They gave the, the grown-ups or the brimstone and hellfire. The kids got Jesus loves me. That's good. Yeah, kids, <laughs> Jesus loves me, but that doesn't last long. <laughs> By the time you're in school, it's hellfire and damnation kind of stuff. So, uh, these actually that song very powerful to give one that feeling of yes, I am loved, I am part of this, I am you know a- acceptable. Mm. That's the that's the kind of psychological healing, right? That a lot of that's a big dimension of. Well, here's the question: Why did we ever get sick? Why can't we keep that? Because mm-hmm. I'm seeing my own daughter at the age of eight. She's losing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the self-consciousness, isn't it, that children start to have, and and all of the teachers and all of the rule following. You see, I don't have that much influence on her. That she's got teachers and mommies and. Thai people all around. She's really good at Thai language, but her English, she's afraid of it. But that's another issue. The point that I'm making is, is that because I don't have that much control of her, if I lived in in a cave with Kitty, she'd be completely different. (laughs) But that didn't happen. And so she's, she's buying the trip. I think, though, to a certain extent, all children do need to do that, right? Like, they need to... Be beaten into shape like a plowshare and then... No, wow. definitely not beaten into shape, but I mean... <laughs> they need to buy the promise of their society. They need to be... They need to feel like... But the society, even guess what? Other than something vaguely said, like the quote, quote, American dream, mm-hmm. or you can be president someday, or those kinds of things, or whatever the, uh, an individual culture has, generally, kids can see that, hey, wait a minute, everybody around me is in a hell of a mess. Mm-hmm. How can I expect anything better than what I'm getting? And yet all of society, television, the um, businesses, the religions, the government, everything is saying, oh, if you keep working hard, you can be successful. Mm -hmm. And we keep working hard and we never feel successful. Mm -hmm. But the teaching of the Buddha is, hey, man, Look at that feeling that you have of being unsuccessful. Sit down and deal with that. Mm -hmm. 
But I, I think that there are certain aspects of the Buddha Dharma that children can't do. Like children. Absolutely. It, the Dharma is not for the feeble minded, and we all start off feeble minded. Yes, but also, like, it's. Like and in, so that mind needs to at least a little bit of exercise. In fact, I think that I would have a whole lot of difficulty being able to work with a student who didn't know how to read. Yeah. But I've never had one. All of the students are well educated. All of the students have, are at least willing to give up uh, magical thinking as if they had uh, uh, either come out of a religion or were born of parents that had come out of a religion. Mm. And so now they're looking for the real deal. And so having that learning experience of being associated somewhat with the religion and getting over it and saying, hey, there's got to be something better than this because this makes me feel bad, not good. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I believe you. A child is not going to learn what fire is until he sticks his own hand yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah. And they, like, they, I feel like a child ne- needs to, to see firsthand how the promises of their society are perhaps not the not the end of the road not the not not the satisfaction that they're promised and and during that time a door needs to be kept open to to something else but you can't force the child through that door you just need to kind of show well, they, them they, they they sell a hell of a package They sell a major, major package. Mm. What, society to children? Well, let's just call business. I mean, look at all the products that they have. What a package, these products that that business has to sell. Mm. And here in Thailand, basically the businesses are closed and everybody's hurting. So Mm. businesses make people happy in a way by giving them something to do because they've already been told, hey man, you got to go do something. Mm-hmm. And if all the businesses are closed, nobody's doing anything. Mm-hmm. They don't like it. Okay, so that's the ordinary mind. It's only when we come to the point of recognizing, hey, wait a minute, I was actually pretty good at all that doing and I still was dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. That's the spark. Mm-hmm. Or another way of saying it is, is that every big rocket, a Saturn V and, and uh, SpaceX and all of this kind of stuff, to get a little tiny capsule up into orbit, they need this huge, huge rocket that burns off in stages. Mm-hmm. And we can actually say that that first major stage is to get that thing up into the air to get us to adulthood. And that, that that those booster rockets are not going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. They're only there for a while, and then they burn off, and then they fall away. And mm-hmm. so the rocket then takes on and gets the, the real rocket engine that's going to actually take it on up. Okay, so things like that happen in stages. Mm-hmm. The human development is like that. In fact, the Buddha talks about it in the sense of long view, just that I can get away with anything. 
Mm-hmm. If you take that to his logical conclusion, you have anarchy, chaos, dog eat dog, and except in our case, it was human eating human, mm-hmm. and human sacrifices, and then we went to animal sacrifices, and then we stopped doing that. We used to have slavery and beating people. Now we beat them with a paycheck to get them to behave. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're at least going in a softer direction as the rocket goes up as a society, and that's marvelous. We're beginning to rely less and less upon magic. But believe me, the pharaohs got the pyramids built with magic. There was no mm-hmm. other way to do it. That Rome, then in fact Constantine, very, very big time converting to Christianity because of uh, the Roman army had their own religion of uh, Mithras. Yeah. Okay, so it's all based on magic. That in fact, uh, Muhammad was very, very clear of that. In the sense of, hey guys, it's time to go to battle. You've got to go to battle. And if any of you die, you will immediately go to heaven and have 72 virgins. Magical thinking, right? That's what got them into battle. They wouldn't go to battle. Otherwise, they might get killed. And then they don't like that. So it's all about magical thinking that got everything started. I agree with you completely, and that's why we both need the school systems and also recognize that it is truly flawed. Yes, but there's also space. Remember, I'm a teacher. I think like there's a lot of space within the school system. You know, what I teach... Let us say there's a lot of space within your mind. <laughs> and you're taking advantage of that space and you can treat the children better but not every teacher is going to do that because all the other teachers are going to train the kids the way that they were trained because they haven't been as we can say woke yet <laughs> I would say that the, the, the default in my school is a very nurturing gentle style of teaching. How many grades does it go? It's year three to year six, so they're seven to 11. Boy, those 11-year-olds have got a shot coming in. They do. No, we know (laughs) know that. They they really do. Yes, the beginning of secondary school in England. Primary schools are very good in England. Secondary schools are very assessment-obsessed. It's all about your quality, you know, the the exams you take when you're 16 and the exams you take when you're Well, that's very interesting because when I was a kid, it started at the age of six, and it looks like with Montezor and a lot of other stuff that they've actually given the kids more of a childhood. Yeah. And it's only when they get into middle school and then high school is when they turn the screws. Yeah. Although, I mean, England compared to some other systems, you could say we relatively turned the screws earlier. Like in uh, Scandinavian countries, it's basically. All, like they don't start school till seven. So four till seven, they're in these state nurseries, which is just all play and social. Like it's all about how to play in a rich, imaginative way right. with other children and how not to be a dick to other children. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like it's just like social and play. That's, that's marvelous. I, ho- I hope that they learned that they should do that until the kid's about 12 or 15. <laughs> <laughs> Um, whereas in England, but then you know, whereas in England, 
there is a big emphasis on learning to read and write from when they start school when they're four going on five uh-huh well they've experimented with using let us say computer as a toy mm -hmm. so all the kid needs to do is learn a bit of basics like turning the computer on and this is a mouse and this is a keyboard mm -hmm. and that kid just sitting with a computer will learn the alphabet he'll learn how to write and type stuff in and get to websites and learn all kinds of stuff all by himself and all he needs is encouragement mm -hmm. he didn't need a teacher standing in front of the class at all ever mm -hmm. but there but yeah but that i i'm personally i don't i think well, young they're still experimenting with it we haven't figured out how to educate our kids so that they wind up being both useful and happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no we have to go through the useful stage and then we get the happy if we're lucky we can find someone who can give us that spark mm. in a way you could say that it's almost like um Instead of the rocket, let's use the analogy that when we are born, we are born as a primitive being in a soup or a fog of a swamp. And mm -hmm. it is our society that brings us up to dry us out. Mm -hmm. But we still need the spark of the Dhamma in order to be really set on fire. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way of talking about it. And then you're saying, yes, we do need that stage one. And I said, of course we do. I agree with you completely. We need to beat the hell out of those kids before we allow them to be happy. Otherwise, we'll never get a chance to teach them how to be happy. You'll be off someplace killing people, <laughs> not interested in listening to you at all. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. You have to come from, from wrong view to right view and from right view to noble right view. But yes, there's a way that all of that transition, all of those transitions can happen in a kind of nurturing, loving way. And it doesn't have to be... Uh, Oh, gosh, that's so unusual. I think I only know one person that it wound up that way. And that's that the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. What has an educated that way? Well, he was around monks, gentle monks, his whole yeah. life. Although there are cases of... Uh, yeah, sometimes you don't get a good gentle monk. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes um. he's a priest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's cultural things for sure. But yes, there are better ways to raise our kids. And in fact, the Christians know that, at least in their heart, that's why they want to have homeschooling. The problem is, is that at home is where the monsters are. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I understand that there is that uh, issue that, in fact, this is the whole concept of is magic necessary in the Dhamma? The answer is yes, it is step one. You can't even get to the Dhamma without having magical thinking. 
that then needs to be overturned. Mm. I suppose at the beginning it is magical thinking. The idea that you can be happy is magical because you don't really have any, it's like it's a desperate hope at the beginning. <laughs> Um, it's only it's only no, actually, we have also desperate memories of being happy when yeah, we're really little. That we base it on, yeah, maybe, maybe. But it's it, it, the, it, there does seem to be a journey where you start to kind of the, the skill development and the experience of seeing how those skills interact with reality to produce um, better ways of being. That is the shift, right? That's the that's the time when you're coming out of seeing the Dharma as like this exotic, magical thing, and it actually becomes this like. Never mind. Be happy. Yeah. Don't worry. Be happy. Just dukkha, dukkha, naroda. See what you're doing. And <laughs> Bhikkhu Buddha Das. That was his one of the favorite lines that he had with me. Just look at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, right. I want to have a conversation with you this week. Maybe the next conversation I speak, I speak with you about, although, as I've said, leaning away from the, the need to kind of conceptualize things. But on the other hand, I'm, uh, I'm interested in exploring. Oh, but guess what? The big yet and the big all doesn't need much conceptualization. No. Just one word will do everything. Oh, what a wonderful world! And we—it's the whole quality of expanding. And so it's dynamic in the first place. And so concepts are generally pretty rigid structures, mm -hmm. way things are. And so if we have to have an analogy, let it be a, a, a drawbridge, mm -hmm. or maybe a loaf of bread that's being broken open. Mm -hmm. To borrow a nice Christian. And another one that I like very much is about a balloon, uh, an aerial balloon, a hot air balloon that is about to leave the ground. Maybe in Oz, you know, with the Wizard of Oz on board or something. And the last thing that happens is, is that we cut that final cord, mm -hmm. the tether, the last one. And then mm -hmm. we just kind of float up into the air. Okay, so that may be a nice visual image for you. Is just letting go by cutting that cord, cutting that last rope. Now we just sort of float up into the air. Mm. So these are the kind of things that you can have as imagery that mm. are softer than a full-on concept. Mm. But what, what I'm sort of getting at is how those those images point very nicely to that to that feeling and to that space without <laughs> kind of tying it down. But how how does that space relate to the idea of nibbana? That's it. That is nibbana. Mm. The cooling off that happens when a pie is finally taken out of the stove. Mm. That's what the word means. It means cool, mm. which also can be relaxed. Okay, so this is nirvana. Bhikkhu Buddha Das has got a book, or at least a work that you can find, called uh, 
nirvana for everyone, mm. where he talks about it in the sense of everybody's got little nirvanas, we're just mm. not aware of them. And if we know what we're doing, which is what we're talking about this whole time is nirvana, mm. then then we can give get the right tools. Mm. Like, oh, wow, this really is nirvana. <laughs> Actually, the word Nibbana was used in the time of the Buddha for two things. One was animal training, and the other one was like the pie coming out of the... When, when you have food hot off the fire, you don't want to eat it. You want to let it Nibbana. Mm -hmm. And that you don't want a wild dog. You want them a bit trained. You want to be able to control them a little bit. Down boy, you know. Sit. But that's about all they need. They need just a little bit of training to be domesticated. Mm. Okay, so in a, in a way, that's much of the nibbana that would have been done to a very wild animal or a wild creature, such as a human being, mm. has been done by our culture. A lot of the nibbana process of cooling us off, but it did it with magical thinking. That if you don't settle down and shut up and, and cool down, we're going to beat the tar out of you. Mm. So that magical thinking then gives way to, oh, wow, yeah, I can just sit down and relax. I don't have to uh, be driven by those feelings that I've got. About what jerks they are and how I need to pay them back. <laughs> yeah, you believe that to a human being, we are really big on revenge. Mm -hmm. Really, really big on revenge. We like it. Mm -hmm. Payback. I'm going to get you. In fact, mm -hmm. that's the whole source of, of the, the deep law of karma in the sense that that old rich man robbed me and now he died naturally in a happy state with a good fortune and all of that. I'm going to have to invent something to get him back. Oh, hell, right, he's going to go to hell. <laughs> and therefore hell is born because now I feel better because that old man that I hated is now in hell in my mind. Hmm. <laughs> But in so doing, you've invented hell in your mind. Ha! <laughs> <Why? laughs> Payback time! <laughs> yeah, that will bite you on the arm. If you hell, you'll be in it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and if you invent a paradise and invent a heaven, then you can be there too. Hmm. All right, Damarato. Thanks so much for talking. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you a little bit later. Go yeah. Let you, yeah. Go have some of that uh, open consciousness, that ah, feeling. Yeah.